successfully back at school or university, I can ask a question. Um, what's the most difficult test you've taken? Anybody? Um, most difficult test. It might be your A-levels. It might be O-levels, GCSE level. It might be that you did a post-grad qualification, you know, PhD with a viva that was difficult. Um, maybe for you it was a driving test. Um, read just recently in preparation for this message that we can spare a thought for a 38-year-old Liverpudlian man who has uh, taken his test 39 times, which is quite impressive. Uh, there's a 30-year-old woman. The, the test these days is broken down into a theory and a practical. You have to go and take your theory first, then you can take your practical. There's a 30-year-old 30, 30, um, woman who's taken the theory test 113 times. Um, there's a 40-year-old man who's taken it 107 times. That's a lot of times to take a theory test for driving. 113 or 107, that's a lot of times to keep going on the same test. Given that it's multiple choice, surely eventually it's got to be just some random chance that you happen upon the right number of answers to get through. That's incredible, isn't it? I'm told, I don't know if it's an urban myth or not, that Einstein never learned to drive, saying it was too complicated. Um, maybe that gives us some comfort if driving's not your forte, um, but you'll have to decide whether that's true or not, because I, I did a little bit of research and wasn't quite sure. I'm not sure what the hardest exams you've done are, but I want to talk about a great test today, and we've been looking at Joseph's life in the Bible, and we've come to a point where it's the end of the story, and actually we've looked at some ups and downs in Joseph's story, but I want to talk about the end of Joseph's uh, experience and a test that he went through. And you might be thinking, well, what, what's that? Because if you recount the story, Joseph um, had a good start and then kind of fell out with his brothers, got stripped of a special cloak he'd been given, got put in a cistern and uh, sold into slavery. When he's a slave, he then gets accused of attempting to rape his master's wife, which turns out to be a false accusation. He's put into prison despite that. Uh, when he's in prison, he interprets some dreams uh, for a couple of people. And they forget all about him. And uh, that's where we left the story. And you think, well, surely that's testing enough. Surely it can't get any worse. And, and it doesn't in many ways. Because uh, from that moment, we read some incredible things about Joseph's life. Uh, I've got the story as we pick it up. See, he, he interprets these dreams. And then Pharaoh, the Egyptian leader, has a couple of dreams too. And uh, when Pharaoh's had the dreams, no one can interpret them and... He's, he's talking about this in the palace. And, and, and one of the men who was in prison with Joseph remembers that he was in prison with Joseph and remembers that Joseph interpreted these dreams. And says, oh, I forgot. Some time ago, you put me in prison and a man interpreted my dreams. And so he's called for, Pharaoh calls for this man. And uh, he goes and, and uh, Joseph is shaved and washed and changes his clothes and he goes to stand before Pharaoh. The story unfolds that Joseph manages to interpret the dreams uh, for Pharaoh and he explains what they are and it's, it's, it's a predictive dream that God's given him or that he's had about the, the famine that's to come after the blessing that's to come. So, so Joseph says that look, Egypt's going to have seven years of plenty and blessing and then seven years of famine. And it's going to be really good for the seven years and then really bad for those seven. And then he says, I tell you what you should do. You should appoint somebody who's wise to look after the whole land. And make sure that some crops are kept 
and kept in a storehouse in the good years and then given out in the poor years. And that way there'll be enough. We read this in the Bible. Following on from all this, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man? So obviously filled with the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of these dreams to you, clearly no one else is is as intelligent or as wise as you are. You'll be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in a chariot, in the chariot reserved for his second in command. Wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian name. Here we go. Zaphonath Paniah. That's as good as it's going to get. He also gave him a wife whose name was Asenath. She was the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. On's an easy name. There we go, manage that one. Joseph seems to have come into opulent, extravagant success. Incredible. He goes from being in prison and he's, it's like in the space of a day, he's washed and shaved and put in new clothes and he's brought into Pharaoh's presence. And then it's like he leaves this conversation. One moment a prisoner, then he arrives and, speaks and then he leaves in charge of the entire land of Egypt. That's quite a promotion. That's quite an annual appraisal or review, isn't it? Where you kind of go through and suddenly you've gone from down here and you're now running the place. And I've just highlighted some of the key sections there that Joseph goes away with in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh takes his signet ring off and puts it on Joseph's finger, symbolizing authority. The ability to make decisions and authorize them. He dresses him in fine linen clothing with a gold chain around his neck. Well, this is impressive stuff, isn't it? That's quite something. We remember, of course, that Joseph had a special coat made that he'd lost or had taken off him by his brothers. And we see this restoration that God's doing as God restores what's been taken um, but in, in terms of his clothing that's restored and he's got better clothing than he ever had before. I like to think that the clothing he's put on, he's wearing now, is better than the one his dad gave him, this special coat that he wore. And this is kind of restoration that's happening. But my favorite bit's the next bit. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second command, and wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. Now, now Joseph's been in prison. He's not gone anywhere. The previous journey he had was from Potiphar's house to prison. That's probably not a very long way but he most likely would have been in chains. The one before that, he was being sold by slave traders into slavery. One before that, he was kind of, it was his brothers doing the dirty on him. So he's not had a good run of of journeys. 
The one before that, he walked to go and see his brothers. All these different miles that he went to go and find them. And now he's sitting in a chariot. Not just any chariot, but the chariot reserved for the second in command. And as he passes by, people have to kneel down. That's impressive. In terms of success, Joseph is there. He's, he's successful in every possible area. And so Joseph is put in charge of all of Egypt. Now, my first point before I go on anywhere else from this is I, I want to say this. God wants us to be successful. God wants us to be successful. He really does. I believe God crafted us to be successful. He made us to be successful. He promises success through the Old Testament. Uh, for example, there's a promise in Joshua where um, Joshua's told this, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Don't deviate them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you'll be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only that then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Success and success coming through. If this sounds strange that God wants us to succeed, what's the alternative? Is it that God wants us to fail? Does that feel any more comfortable if it sounds strange, me standing here saying God wants us to succeed? Is it that God sets out for us to fail? Did Jesus go to the cross so that we could fail? I don't believe he did. I don't believe Jesus went to the cross so we could fail in life. I don't believe he trains his disciples to fail. I don't believe he sends his Holy Spirit so that we could fail. He wants us to be successful. He commissioned us and commanded us. He empowered us and sent us to be a success. I don't believe that failure is God's agenda or plan for your life. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes to give life and life to the full you didn't wake up today to fail. You didn't wake up even to be mediocre today. All of that, I believe wholeheartedly. But there is a slight problem. It's what do we mean when we're talking about success? Because all of that that I've just said is true. It's based on the word of God. And those promises to Joshua were true. He was promised success. But what does it mean? And the massive, it's a massive problem because when most people talk about success and when God talks about success, we're actually talking about two different things. This is what the Oxford Dictionary says. The Oxford Dictionary says that success is the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose. It goes on to say, secondarily, the attainment of fame, wealth, or so social status. Thirdly, a person or thing that achieves desired aims or attains fame or wealth, etc., that's what the world at large believes success to be, and that's what we sometimes talk about when we're talking about success. Now, in those terms, Joseph is possibly one of the most successful men in the Bible right now because he's want, going around in a chariot and people are kneeling down to him as he goes past. That would be really awkward if you were out shopping, wouldn't it? Chariot goes past, kneel down. Yes, okay, up you get again. You know, different culture. We, we just can't get this, this in our mind, this, this shock. But Joseph at the moment is this incredibly successful man by this standard. He's only got one more position to go, that of Pharaoh, and then he's really cracked it, hasn't he? Because then he's got ultimate status and ultimate wealth. He'll be worshipped as a god, and then he's got everything he could have wanted. I don't know if you can see that clearly enough, but the, 
when we're looking at success in those terms. We see that success is about achieving my goals. Success brings me pleasure. Success takes drive and ambition to succeed. No one else is going to do it for you. To achieve success takes energy and drive and ambition. You've got to go for it. You've got to set your goals and set some targets out and achieve them. Success needs to be evident in the here and now. We should be able to see evidence of this kind of success. It should affect me and those around me. Me and my family should be blessed and those around me should be blessed and helped. And It should be obvious that I'm successful. But of course, the other flip side of success of that kind, all of that on the left-hand side, is that it actually never satisfies us, that kind of success. That kind of success where I'm setting out a goal and I'm achieving it brings some kind of pleasure, but it's temporary. It takes drive and ambition, but when I've succeeded, it's only my success that I've got. And it's evident here and now. It affects me and my family, but if it's gone my whole world collapses. If any of those things is taken away, if my success doesn't work, if I fail at something, it's as if my whole world crumbles because I've built it on my ambition and my desire and achieving my goals. And I have a crisis. Biblical success is very, very, very different from worldly success. And we have a slight problem as Christians because we're so in, in the culture around us that we can be tempted to still work to these principles but just soften them slightly. So what we can do is go, well, that sounds greedy and grasping. So what I'll do is just be a bit less greedy and a bit less grasping and I'll still have goals to achieve and I'll, I'll still want things for my pleasure and I'll, but I'll just soften it. So maybe my, my goals will be a bit less ambitious. Maybe if I just tone it down and instead of world domination, how about just a nice house? And a car that works. Wouldn't that be nice right now? And a job. And maybe a holiday. Not, not fancy holidays, but just one a year would be nice. And, and that's my ambition. That's my goal. That would be success for me. I don't want to rule the world, but I'll just, I just I want a slice of that. That would be okay, wouldn't it? God wouldn't mind if I just had a slice. I'm not going to be like Joseph with people bowing down to me, but just, you know, to be okay bit less graspy, but still with some stuff. There's a problem, even with that being our measure of success as Christians, is that most Christians who've ever been alive in the world, in history, wouldn't have been successful on that measure. Because they didn't have a nice house, and they didn't have a pleasant job necessarily, or a holiday every year, or a nice car. Uh, maybe they didn't have an okay retirement If success means that you've got to be married with kids and a perfect family, then Jesus fails and Paul fails and many church leaders down through history and many missionaries have failed because many of them weren't married. If success means we have the honor or recognition of the world and it's evident and people kind of notice me, then all the Christians in the first 300 years of the, of the church failed because they were hard done by. Success in biblical terms is quite different from the kind of success we read of in the world's terms. Success in godly success means 
that we're not setting out just to achieve our goals, but we're setting out to be obedient to God and living as people called by God. Success in God's terms, when we read about success in the Scripture, means that it doesn't just bring us pleasure, it brings us joy and peace eternally when we're achieving godly success. Success doesn't just take drive and determination, it takes overcoming faith and faithfulness and huge great dollops of grace. Why does it take grace? Because we, from beginning to end, we're utterly dependent on God. From beginning to end, I can't have a dream and, and fulfill it and derive satisfaction from that and think that my life is complete because from the very beginning, I need God. I need his grace. I need his mercy. I need him and his provision for everything we do. Evidence of our success is now in part, but it lasts forever and it's eternal. Evidence of our success in biblical terms affects those I've never met. It rubs off. Makes a difference. And evidence of our success brings eternal reward. We have to hold those on the right-hand side to be true. Because on... There was... There's a cross there. I was going to point up there, but it's there. It's moved. There's a cross here behind me. Jesus went to the cross. And I would argue with anybody that would like to contest that Jesus was successful. Because I believe Jesus was successful. Some might like to say he wasn't. But I'm going to argue Jesus was completely successful. And the cry that was issued from the cross when Jesus cried out, It is finished. It was not a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. It was a cry of victory because the price had been paid. And yet, at that moment, he's stuck on a piece of wood. You could argue it's all of those things on the left. He achieved his goal. But I want to pull you across to the right-hand side. That actually he was being obedient to the will of his Father. He was living as one called. You could argue it brought pleasure I think you're going to have to do a little bit deeper than pleasure at that point because I think there was a lot of pain. But I think there was eternal peace for all mankind who accessed that. I, I think it did take drive and determination and um, ambition, godly ambition for Jesus. I think it took his faithfulness. I think it took him being persevering and, and remaining and keeping going. And it took provision from his father. Was it evident there and then as he was on the cross I don't think it was to people. But now it's evident the success that Jesus had. You see, we live by a different measure. Our lives have to be measured differently from those who are all around us. Our lives affect other people. In the Connect magazine that you've got this week, um, it talks in there a lot about our missions work that we do and the faith promise offering, the missions offering that we take. And it just unpacks some of the work that's going on and by by contributing into that, by giving, by praying, we can have partnerships with those around the world who are making a real difference. And we can affect those that we've never met by supporting those in mission. That's important. It's wonderful, isn't it? So we can pray and give and some will go to see projects and, and pray for people that we will never, ever meet. But one day we may do when we're face to face with the King of Kings. God's plan is to use ordinary people to do extraordinary and miraculous work from him.
The problem with our view of success, with human views of success, is not that they're too ambitious, that we should somehow scale them down. It's that they're too small and we should increase them. See, God's call is not only to human ambition or human success. God's call is much bigger. It's much higher. Human success is too small. It's too temporary. Yesterday's success is today's history. It's gone. It's, it's kind of puny. Uh, Nat's gone off to university and we, he's cleared out a few bits from his room and there's a few old gadgets that he had years ago that he doesn't want anymore. And I was kind of looking over them yesterday thinking, oh, yeah, who needs these anymore? These old gadgets. Nat wanted to chuck them out and we're just sorting them through. But when they first came out, they were the latest thing. He saved up to buy them. He invested money to get it and it was shiny and exciting and occupied his time. And today it's, it's consigned to the dustbin. Why? Because it was brilliant in the moment and it's moved on. Success in human terms is temporary and gone. But God's success lasts forever. Too often I think we exchange the glory of God for trinkets and temporary pleasures. That passage in Joshua, be strong and courageous, etc., etc., then you'll be successful in everything you do. When you look up the word successful, turns out that it's more commonly used for wisdom, prudence, understanding, and having insight. That God is promising that Joshua will be wise and prudent and have understanding and have insight. That he'll, if he spends time in the Word, if he spends time obeying the instructions Moses gave and uh, reading them and obeying them, then he'll know what to do. That makes sense in the context, doesn't it? Because he's reading about obeying the word of God and the word of God being given. What we do is we tend to skip over all that a bit and read success and go, great, we'll be successful. But it's success in context. And, and this story of Joseph, I think it's really important because it shows us how to handle success. Now, Joseph was promoted because of his wisdom, because he had insight, because he could do what no one else could do. He could speak truth to Pharaoh. He could interpret the dream and tell him what to do when no one else can and when no one else could. And I expect and hope and believe that Christians should be getting promoted. I think there should be favor on our lives at times because we're conducting ourselves wisely with integrity. We're using the gifts God has given and we're applying ourselves diligently in our workplace as one serving the King of Kings. When you do that, then I would expect that at times there's favor and promotion and all those sort of things coming your way. Not because you are utterly brilliant, though you are, but because God is brilliant and working out through you. He's gifted you and he's using you and he's working in you. It's no great surprise that success will come in human terms to those who are seeking success in godly terms. It's no surprise, and they don't counteract each other necessarily. That's okay in our culture. If you're living in a culture in many countries of the world where Christians are persecuted, I probably wouldn't be saying the same thing. Because there, it doesn't matter how good you are, to wear the name of Christ means that you bear the cross and you suffer persecution and shame and abasement. And it doesn't matter how good you are and how hard you try and all the rest of it because actually there's a different system at work. But here in our comparatively peaceful, secularized society, there is still at this moment the opportunity for receiving success 
in the world's eyes and receiving promotion and favor if we serve the king. So what do we do if that comes? What do we do if we find ourselves being successful? Well, number one, remember that God is the source of success. Later on, when Joseph is, is, is meeting with his brothers, I haven't told you the rest of the story, but basically those brothers that sold him into slavery, um, they experience a famine in their homeland and they need to come and buy some grain. And when they come, they have to buy grain from Joseph. And Joseph is this man who's being driven around with people bowing down to him. He's in charge of the whole of Egypt. And his brothers come back and say, please, sir, can we have some grain? And they go away and they come back and say, please, sir, can we have some more? And that's the situation. And there's a, all this is going to unfold. But Joseph doesn't, isn't just only given a wife. He's, he has two sons. And this is a little hint, little hint that Joseph remembers that God is the source of his blessing. We read this, Joseph named his older son Manasseh for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Then Joseph named his second son Ephraim for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. There's pain, there's the memories of what his family had done to him, but he's saying God has made. Notice that? God has made. Not, I interpreted a dream really well. Look at how clever I am. Look at, I was the only one in the whole of Egypt who could achieve this. No, God has made. If ever success in human terms comes your way, then let's remember that God is the source of it. God is the source. Let's give him glory. Let's honor him. Let's not demean ourselves and pretend that we weren't involved. We were involved. If someone congratulates you for doing something well, say thank you. But then immediately make sure that you're giving God the glory in your own heart, in your own devotion. Remember that God is the source of all success. All that we have is from him. All gifts and talents and finance and provision are from him. Secondly, remember God's greater purpose. Any temporary, temporal promotion or finance that comes your way or brilliant moment that feels like a great success, any great victory, remember what the purpose is. Remember what it's all about. Because it's easy in that moment to lose sight and just revel in how brilliant we are. It's easy just to be so enjoying the success that we forget that God's actually at work. And he's doing something much bigger. What is it that God's doing through you and through me? He's building his kingdom and he's blessing others. Joseph, when he's surrounded by opulence, and in his palace, and his brothers are having to come and meet him in his own palace. How cool is that? He gets a palace. He says this to them, don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve, look, to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. This is incredible. God is building his kingdom through people like us. He wants to make a difference through our lives day after day after day. God's success, view of success is so different to ours. So preparing for this, I read a story of uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. 
And he, years ago, was asked by the BBC to, define, to give a, a defining moment in his life. I think they were doing a retrospective. And he, he said there was one moment when he was a young boy and he and his mother were walking down the street. He was nine years old. And a tall white man dressed in a black suit came towards them. Now in those days, according to this report I read, it was customary that if a black person and a white person were to meet on a footpath, the black person was expected to step into off the street, or into the street, sorry, off the footpath, to allow the white person to pa pass by and to nod their head as a gesture of respect. But this day, something different happened. This day, as Desmond Tutu and his mum were walking along, the white guy, the tall white guy, walked past into the street and took his hat off and greeted them and walked past. This incredible transformation took place. And he said, who is that? To his mum. And it was Trevor Huddleston, an Anglican priest. And Tutu said that that moment changed his life. That when he was told that the man had stepped off the sidewalk, the pavement, because he was a man of God, Tutu said this, I found my calling. When she told me that he was an Anglican priest, I decided there and then that I wanted to be an Anglican priest too. And what's more, I wanted to be a man of God. All Trevor Huddleston did in that moment was step off a pavement, doff his cap. And yet God was working through him to build his kingdom. There was a greater purpose at work for that tiny moment. That tiny moment. Now that, that moment wouldn't have been measured as a, as a success in anybody's book. Stepping off a pavement, doffing your cap, doesn't, doesn't make a success. But in God's kingdom, something transformational was happening in the heart of a young boy. Because God's plan is to use ordinary people to do extraordinary and miraculous work for the kingdom of God. Remember the bigger purpose. Thirdly, Remember, if you do come into great position and great authority, that ultimately it's God's authority. Joseph replied in, in, in response to a query when they're panicking, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that, you can punish, that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He goes on to say, uh, he brought me to this position so I could save many, many lives. Don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your Children, whatever position we find ourselves in, God is above and over and Lord, and we're following him. He raises up, he lowers. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's not our kingdom. It's always his and his glory. Let me wrap it up by just with a couple of points. How do we live a truly successful life? Number one, you live for the king of kings. Live sold out for the king of kings. It's said that William Carey, the great missionary to India became incredibly concerned about his son because his son Felix had said he was a believer, he'd been following Jesus and had also shared a call to be a missionary. But he'd gone back on that promise when he became appointed ambassador of the British government to Burma. Carey sent back a message asking for prayer for his son Felix who'd become the governor or the ambassador to Burma. This is his prayer. Pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the King of Kings. Most of us parents would go, look at what my son's doing in that moment. I'd be so proud. 
And yet Carey had this burning passion and desire for his son who professed ambition to, to serve as a missionary that he shouldn't do anything less. There's no higher call. If you are an ambassador, then serve for Jesus and do it well. If you're in political office, serve for Jesus and do it well. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it for the king. Living for the long term. That's number two. Live for the long term. C.S. Lewis says this. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did more for the present world were just those who thought more of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Thirdly and finally, live to be a blessing. Live to be a blessing. I want to say today, we've got, you've got, and I've got permission to be successful. God isn't against success. He doesn't demean it or decry it. But what he does do is redefine it. He would encourage us to not set out for worldly success like everybody else is chasing after because ultimately it doesn't satisfy. He would encourage us to chase after him and godly success, to chase after the call of God, to follow the call of God in our lives. And you may find that you end up with both or you may not. You may just end up following Jesus. That is enough. God has given us brains. He's given us skills. He's given us abilities. My encouragement would be to use them. To use them to the best of your ability. To use the talents God's given. To use the opportunities you have, whether in the workplace or in your neighborhood or wherever that might be, to, to use it. If, if promotion comes your way and you believe it's right from God, then take it. But use that as an opportunity to serve the king. If you find yourself having skills in finance or healthcare or art or business, hospitality, whatever, use it for the king. Because godly success, godly success blesses thousands. It blesses generations to come. It's not about us. It's not about our moments. It's not about our name going down in history. But maybe, just maybe, thousands might be brought into the kingdom of God because we dared to live for the one whose calling is higher than just a better house than we've already got and a better car than we've already got unless it's broken, in which case that might be quite helpful. And a better this and a better that because ultimately that's just temporary and fading. Let's live for the cause of Christ. Can we pray together? Lord, we thank you that you have blessed many of us, at different times in our lives with things that we would look back and say are successes. And yet, when we look back on them, when we hold them before you, we don't want to rest on those. Lord, we want to live for your kingdom and your glory. We want to live for the King of Kings and to be able to stand before you one day when all our works are, if they're of us, they're like filthy rags. And yet we're covered in a garment that's of your grace. And we want to say, we want to hear your words, Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we would trade all the accolades of earth 
all the promotions, all the whatever it may be that would come, the awards, to hear your well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I thank you that you've called people in this room, each one of us to live for you. I thank you that you have graced us with your provision. And for some, that means great positions of responsibility. And we pray for all those who have positions of great responsibility for your wisdom. Lord, that they would serve with diligence and faithfulness. That as they serve, you would be honored through their service. Lord, there would be opportunities for people to continue to exert influence. uh, Not for themselves, not for their own ambition, but to glorify you. Lord, we pray that you would use us in whatever role we find ourselves in in society. Whether our hands feel full of provision or whether we feel lack. To continue to trust you. Continue to live for you. To continue to look for your success as we obey you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Stuart. That was a great word.